On today's complicated conversation, we are joined by Emma Rosenblum. Emma is a content officer at Bustle Digital Group, overseeing content and strategy for Bustle, Elite Daily, Nylon, The Zoe Report, Romper, Scary Mommy, Fatherly, The Dad, Inverse, and Mike. Her debut novel, Bad Summer People, is out now. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Emma. Thanks for having me. I can't wait to talk to both of you. We are so excited. I, I related to this book way more than I should have, probably. <laughs> um, but give um, our listeners uh, the elevator pitch, please, for Bad Summer People. So Bad Summer People is a beach read murder mystery set in Fire Island. It follows a group of couples and friends who've known each other for a really long time and uh, they're all rich and they all behave badly and someone dies at the beginning of the book and then you spend the rest of the book trying to figure out who died and how they died. That is perfect. And part of the reason I relate to it so much has to do with the setting. Um, I'm actually, I live in the Hamptons. I'm from the Hamptons. Mm -hmm. I now Mm -hmm. have returned there. I grew up here, returned here with my family. Uh, You make a lot of jokes about the Hamptons, all all <laughs> funny and correct um, in terms of comparing it to your fictional setting or of Fire Island. Not that yep. Fire Island is fictional, but the town that you set it in. So there's a lot of comparisons. I saw a lot of similarities um, mm-hmm. to the settings. There's a passage I love about how the summer and the island has a way of seducing you and making you forget the bad parts uh, by mm-hmm. Labor Day, which felt very true to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but The setting is also just really important, I think, in a lot of ways for, as you said, this vacation mystery that opens with a dead body. So tell us about why you wanted to set it there. I know you have a personal connection with Fire Island, but also just why it works so well for the story. Yeah, so I'm actually in Fire Island right now. I've spent my whole life coming out here uh, for the summers. And a few years ago, I wrote this two summers ago when I was here And I was actually back for the first time as an adult for the full summer. We brought our kids out. We stay in my parents' house. And because COVID happened and I work remotely during the summers now, and my husband is able to do the same thing. So we were actually able to come out here and be here in a way as a grown-up I hadn't ever done before. And I was really struck by the funniness of the small town dynamics. We live in a town called Saltaire, which is, I basically fictionalized and called it Salcom in Bad Summer People. And just the idea that everybody is stuck together. You can't get here except for on a ferry. And also people do very much come out here their whole lives. They inherit their parents' houses or they buy another house and live down the block from their parents. It's got this big kind of familial feel with your neighbors because you've just known them. Like I, I pass people on my bike and I, they've known me since my mom was pregnant with me. So it's mm-hmm. that kind of dynamic. And then they know my kids. And I just felt like this kind of combustible small town energy would be a great setting for a book. And I did some research. I had not seen any other books set in Fire Island. Now there's like a couple of them yeah. out this year, which is funny It's like one of those things where like in fashion, Mm -hmm. you know, you're like, how did everyone know to do the same color blue this year? Um, (laughs) But uh, at the time there weren't any. And so I thought, okay, I'm definitely going to set it here. And there's a dark joke around town that someone is going to die riding off the boardwalk drunk because people do drink and ride their bikes, which is not Mm -hmm. safe. And it's dark and there's no street lamps and um, they raised the boardwalks and they're really high now. And so I thought it would be interesting to have that as the setup, as kind of the Mm -hmm. like dark, funny setup. 
and then get into the mystery of it all. So it mm. kind of had to be in a place like this. And, you know, nobody locks their doors here. And, you know, you can't, there aren't any crimes here. So it's a fun thing to have like a crime in a town like this where there's there's none of that. Yeah. Uh, so that's why I chose to set it in in this town. And also, you know, it was one of those things, write what you know. I've, I've been out here and it's so it was so easy for me to describe it. It's like your childhood home or something. You can close your eyes and just be there even if you're not there. And so that's what this place is for me. I love that you kept saying dark and funny because that is what this book is, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? It is, uh, it captures that tone perfectly. And I know that two of your influences, I've read an interview with you where you talked about Succession and White Lotus, also mm-hmm. kind of darkly funny shows uh, about people, wealthy people behaving badly. But you had said that you thought those shows work because they're on the show itself. It portrays the characters with a total absence of moralization. And mm-hmm. that was something that you were picking up on and wanted to use for your book. So tell us why that was important to you to um, show that kind of nuance, especially with the women. Well, I don't believe in black and white and heroes and good and bad. I also really, you know, have a journalist ear sometimes for when people speak and dialogue and particularly amongst, uh, you know, wealthy people. I grew up in New York. I live on the Upper East Side. I'm among people who sometimes there's a lack of self-awareness there that I find funny as a person who has been trained my whole career to to pick up quotes and to say, okay, this is going to be the kicker of an article because this person sounds crazy right now, but they don't really know that they sound crazy. Yes. And so I spent my life kind of observing that. And I saw that reflected in like a white lotus, the dialogue there and in a succession where just the kind of head in the clouds, someone really thinks that it's really hard to like renovate your $10 million brownstone. Like that's hard for them. (laughs) Like they'll say stuff like that and you're standing there and you're like, did you say, but I don't think they hear themselves speak. So I wanted Mm -hmm. to definitely incorporate that into the book because I just, I find that so amusing. And I didn't also want to put my own judgments because it's so easy to let people hang themselves with the way that they speak and the way that they are and their internal thoughts I wasn't trying to say this person was good or bad. I mean, obviously we called it bad summer people, which, you know, was kind mm-hmm. of like a clever play on on the kind of book it was. But yeah. I don't think people think of themselves that way. And I I think that's an interesting thing to see reflected in fiction, particularly with women, because we generally have for like beach reads specifically. And obviously this isn't like a, you know, family drama saga. It's a different yeah. kind of book. It's like a frothy book, but generally you'll find really good people in those books who are maybe like down and out or it's a romance and they're just getting in their own way. And then they're like, they're happy. And I I just felt like there was room in that genre for something a little bit like more sinister and to have a little bit more depth there. You know, it's funny because some people read it and they're just like, this is a dumb, fun book. And I'm like, yeah, it's kind of a dumb, fun book in certain ways, but it's not really supposed to be that dumb, right? Like, there's yeah. other things that I was trying to like convey in a way that still was like fun and frothy and like propulsive and plot driven too. Mm-hmm. That is exactly what I felt when I saw in White Lotus when, um, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the young newlywed, the woman goes up to Coach Taylor's wife. Connie Britton. 
Thank kind you, Bonnie. And she, and how she doesn't know. She's like, oh, I wrote about you. And she's so proud of herself. And she thinks she's yeah. done this thing. Mm-hmm. And Connie Britton's like, um, that was a hack piece. And yeah. She was just mm-hmm. so shocked. Like in her mind, it was a totally yeah. different experience. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. And, you know, people think of themselves as like the hero of their own stories. And that's also why I liked playing with the different perspectives. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's, it's people, I, I like getting into people's brains and even if it's a short amount of time showing that like what they're feeling is not necessarily what everybody is saying about them and their experience is not necessarily reflective of like the gossip around them as well yeah Yeah. it's a horrifying realization it really is it really is but you did you really nailed it what you're talking about in terms of imparting nuance to your characters and and not having them be just one thing which is what we focus on on this podcast sort of complicated sure. women so i want to talk about um a few of them so jen mm-hmm. weinstein mm-hmm. uh she's kind she's smart she's a successful psychologist but she's also a cheat Uh, She refers to herself as a shapeshifter, which I Mm -hmm. loved. Um, She's married to the town's golden boy, but clearly has her own darkness. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got Lauren Parker, beautiful ice queen, loving mother, but she's occasionally snaps this summer. Mm -hmm. She seems to be sort of pushing back on conventions in a way that's very unexpected to others and also even to herself. Mm-hmm. And then Rachel Wolf, the single childless gossip in town, but also, you know, a loyalist, a really good friend to mm-hmm. a lot of them. So they all have what we love, which is these contradictions and complications. And so tell us about your development of them. Was there one that came first or or how did you go about um, uh, creating them and getting to so, know them? Yep. Um Lauren came first. She's the first chapter. Mm-hmm. I wrote her before I wrote, I, I wrote that first chapter before I wrote the prologue even with the body. Like I thought the body mm-hmm. was going to come after, but then I thought, oh no, I'll put it in the beginning so people know that it's, at least there's something that they're trying to get towards <laughs> um, and not just a book about vapid rich people. And um, so Lauren was first. There was, I, I know many women who have these qualities about them, not one specifically, but that idea that you just said where they're really, you know, they're a really great mother. They're, you can see that they care about their families in a certain way, but then you also can see that there's some kind of unfulfilled unhappiness there. And particularly with women that I have encountered in my life that don't necessarily have a career to focus on or something else to focus on, there's kind of like a gap where it becomes, they just don't really know like what they're, purpose is in a way. And I think Lauren is kind of in that position and she is a snot and she is like, uh, you know, she only wears certain designers. She, she has these qualities that you would think would make her bad. But then, as you said, there's also these kind of weirdly redeeming qualities. Her husband's just not very nice and you kind of feel Mm -hmm. bad for her in that way. And you kind of cheer her on when she cheats on him because like he's, he's cheating on her. And also he's just kind. And I I just felt like having that kind of character, again, I hadn't seen it in a book, and but I do know it in life. And so I thought it would be fun to bring bring that character to life. And then after Lauren, I I developed Rachel, which was actually Rachel was my most favorite character to write because Rachel is so complicated in that way that um, can happen to women of a certain age who think that they haven't 
checked off all the boxes or reached the milestones they think they should have reached. doesn't mean that they really should have reached it, but they think they should have reached it. And it causes them sometimes to curdle in a way and feel really bad about themselves and maybe for in Rachel's case act out because of that feeling. And, um, I had, I, I've known again, just a few friends who kind of like didn't have kids when they really wanted to have kids and hadn't met the man. And, you know, that really caused them such, um, distress and heartache and, you know, that I wanted to be in Rachel and granted instead of, you know, doing something positive with those feelings or whatever. She, she goes the opposite direction. And, um, but I didn't want you to hate Rachel. I wanted, I wanted the readers to feel bad for Rachel, um, because it's all just kind of misplaced sadness and insecurity that causes her to do what she does over the course of the book. And Jen, I thought was really funny too, because I, there are also people you see floating about where you're just like, that person is totally perfect. And so I really wanted, um, to have that person actually be like the not perfect at all and really like have a real dark side because I, I like that idea of, you know, appearances are deceiving and, you know, women, particularly beautiful women can be thought of in a way because of like the, you know, the perfection of their family or their, you know, their appearance, their outside. And then underneath, I wanted her to be really kind of twisty, which yeah. I thought, you know, so she's yeah. like a sex addict. She's a cheater. But again, it doesn't make her entirely a bad person. Yeah. You, you know, I yeah. don't know, like whatever. People cheat. Like, I don't know. I, I'm not judging yeah. any of these characters. Like, what? That's, if that's what she wants to do, that's what she wants to do. Yeah. yeah. And you can tell that objectivity in this book. Like, there is no, it's not, you know, biting in that way. It's like you decide for yourself what you think of these people and why and their motivations. Are they good enough? Are they just in a vacuum? And you can decide for yourself. I want to talk about the whole cast of First of all, even as you're describing these characters, there's so much nuance, there's so many layers, so much complexity, and then there's a lot of characters. Yeah. I am also writing a multi-POV book, and sometimes I'm in, still in edits, so I sometimes I'm like, I bit off way more than I can chew <laughs> here. Like, I don't know if I can manage all of these people and all of their relationships. You did it effort. It appears effortlessly. How was that experience for you? How did you know you wanted to do multi POV? And um, was there anyone that you had to add in or cut that you regret? Uh, I wanted to just talk about those points of view. Sure. Yeah. I, um, I mean, and probably my multi POV came from, I think, I, I'm not a fiction. I, I you know, now I'm a fiction writer, whatever. But I was not. I'd never written fiction before in my entire life. Your I'd background. never taken a yeah. class. Like I just, I don't have mm -hmm. that background. And I honestly wasn't sure. I didn't think I could just have one POV. Like I was. I, I didn't think that I have the like writing ability really to do that. I, I think I'm, that all the time. I'm like, how can people <laughs> tell a whole story from one point of view? It doesn't make sense to me. I get that part. It, yeah. Yeah. And so in thinking that I, and also I'm, um, I worked on the book in, I, I wasn't just sitting down and writing it only. Like I was doing other work. I would pull it up. I'd like add some. So it was easier for me to finish a chapter and then come back to it and be like, okay, let's do a new chapter. Let's do a new person. Like it just felt like an easier way for me to get through a book, honestly. Like, and when mm -hmm. I was writing it, I didn't even, 
I was like, I don't even know if this is going to be a book. I wasn't even trying to write a book, really. I was just, I wanted to do something on the side. I thought maybe I can like make a little extra money. Like it wasn't this kind of like career goal really for me to like write a novel. Uh, like, I don't know. It just felt like it kind of fell into it. And it, and then I finished it because I, I wanted to finish it. And I was like, oh, interesting. And I did only have the main characters at first in the book. Um, so there were like the six main characters. Uh, I had only written one chapter from Micah's perspective. Micah's the young bartender. And he was kind of like thrown in as kind of one of the um, minor characters. And I decided before I submitted it to add more characters in because I felt like that really would give it that small town feel that I wanted to give it. Yes. And it was kind of like a Greek chorus, you know, where these standalone like interstitial chapters that were shorter, I thought that would help people like get through the book. And I didn't feel that I needed to tell more like from certain people. I was like, they're not part of the main story, but they're still around and they're still looking and they're still watching. And so I thought it'd be interesting to just do like these tiny little things. And then my editor at Flatiron, her main note was that she wanted more of Micah. Hmm. So I added Micah more, throughout, but she never said, I want fewer. And I've definitely read like every Goodreads review now because you're not, I know you're not supposed to do that, but <laughs> no, I not do it? Yeah. a thousand of them at this point. And I'm like, read every single one. <laughs> and there's certainly some people who think that the book had too many POVs. I could have written like a hundred more of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't, yeah. I don't, I'm like, people watch Game of Thrones. Like there's just hundreds yeah. of people in that TV show. Like how could you not keep right. track of like eight people? I don't, but it, you know, certain readers have really liked it. And then certain readers are like, there's too many characters here. And I'm like, well, you know, not every book's not for everybody, but um, that's how I, I got to it. And I just really had, it allowed me to have more fun in the writing process to switch it up. I think otherwise yeah. I got, would have gotten bored writing <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Mm. But you hit mm. on the way you don't have to keep track of everyone because some of them are just offering you like a moment in time, like a look, a different perspective of seeing the exact same thing. And that's what I loved about them. It wasn't that you had to really keep track of everything. It was really the main character stories. So. Yeah, it was just the main characters yeah. that you really needed yeah. like to follow the threads. And then I, again, just like those kind of little moments as you said i thought yeah. it was would make the events of the town seem more rounded yes. and for you to really feel like you're living in a small town with these characters and again people are are seeing things from their own view mm-hmm. and yeah. putting that in i thought was fun you yeah. said you you don't have the background in fiction but you have mastered the most important fiction craft piece which is tricking yourself into finishing yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> is true. the key i love that yeah, you just have to finish it. It's you know, yeah. gotta get an end. I just made it up. I mean, at, at a certain point, I think I was like, "What's gonna even happen?" And I just like went. I just continued on, and I was like, "Well, I guess that's good enough." <laughs> I don't know. Well, I do want to ask you because you know, you we read your bio, and as you've mentioned, you have a, a a very busy career outside of this. So, how did you sort of find the time and split your time? And and I, it sounds like you didn't always have a dream of being a fiction writer, but correct me if I'm wrong, you just, it sounds like you just wanted to give it a try. And so people are always interested sort of in how do people do it? How did you find the time when you have another job? That's true. I, you know, I, I always wanted to write, I thought maybe I would write a book. I didn't know what kind of book. I thought probably nonfiction just because I work in magazines and I'm a journalist Mm -hmm. and you know, that 
more tracks with what people in my industry do, but I couldn't really land on a topic. And also with my job, I thought nonfiction would take too long. It's actually research. I was like, I don't have time to research anything. So maybe I'll just try making stuff up. And I thought maybe that would be harder than what I have done in the past, which is researched feature articles or interviews or whatever. But it actually turned out to be much easier just to make it up. <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't have to call anyone. I don't have to fact check <laughs> this. It can just be lies. Like, it's harder yeah. for me to write something that's researched and just more time. And so what I would do is, as I said, I would just kind of open it up, have it open kind of on the side and it really COVID allowed me to do this project because in, you know, in the old days I was in, in my office and people would always be in my office. There was no yeah. time to just like sit and, and write no like 30 minutes of me doing that. It would just be meeting, coffee, bathroom, like what, you know, it's, you're with people all yeah. the time and working from home is not like that as much. And even with my packed schedule of meetings, I would have little pockets where, other than get a like, snack, there was really nothing to do. My job is really managerial. In the old days, I used to actually have to do like writing and editing. It's not that anymore. So it's not like the kind of work I do has shifted to more just like meetings and answering questions than like actually sitting and working, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And so I was able to do that on the side on top of my still answering questions and leading my team and hiring people and dealing with our, and all of those things. I think in my old jobs as a magazine editor, I don't think I would have had the time to do this, or I would have really not been able to like do both of those kind of writing projects. But this was just like my one writing project. And then everything else was kind of like overseeing stuff. So I, right. I was able to do it. I made fake deadlines for myself. Smart. I would say I have to get, you know, section two done by like July 17th or whatever. And I would meet the deadlines. And then mm -hmm. I just thought, okay, if I finish it by October, then maybe I can send it to someone by December, which is what I did. I would just make sure that I met them. And I'm a pretty quick writer. So that was, that's helpful. Yes. I was yes. just going to say, I listened to your, um, the book on Audible and I love the conversation you had with um, Chandler Baker, who we love at the end. That's a special edition if you listen on or on Audible. And that's what you were talking about, which made sense to me that you're journalistic sort of deadline driven. You write, can put out, copy fast really was yeah. useful here in terms of being able to, to complete this. I love the fake deadlines. Those are uh, yeah, so useful. And, and that also the mentality that has been, you know, it was stressed over and over early in my career was that it's, you know, today's story is tomorrow's garbage. You don't need to work that hard on it. You just need to get it done. Yeah. And mm -hmm. people are going to, you're never, it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be perfect. You have to submit it and it has to go to print. So I had that with the book too. I would just make a decision and move on, if that makes sense. Yeah. I was just yes. like, this is what's going to happen because I'm not going back. Yeah. So here mm -hmm. we go. And I, that's kind of how I did the plot, just saying, okay, I've decided that this is happening. I'm not going to overthink it and I'll just, everything else will flow from that. And I think mm. that also allowed me to finish it because otherwise you're just always going to be second guessing your work. And I've learned throughout the course of my career to be very decisive and it's just like, it's, you know, it's never going to yeah. be the best. And also I wasn't trying to write like the great American novel here. Like <laughs> right, I was, right. you know, like I was trying to finish Something a beach read. Frothy and fun mm -hmm. and yeah. perfect for the summer. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 
The frothiest and most fun part for me I have to talk to you about is the tennis. Okay, so I am a big tennis player. Um, I do belong to a country club, so literally complete with the whites and all. So every scene or discussion in your book about tennis was just, I I was telling Corinne, I'm like, I live this, like literally. <laughs> and that was the part where I'm like, oh, this is hitting way too close to home. You know, just the super competitive nature, the club championships. Oh my God, I've played in those women's doubles club championships with all the people watching. And the part where you said, how women always say, and this is so true now, every time I play and the, the women say it, I think of your book. When, this is, Corinne, this is a thing. Women in doubles tennis, they say, have fun right before you start every time. And you're absolutely right in the book. You're right. And meanwhile, deep down, they're like, I want to kill you. I want, you know, like this ball's going to go. Yeah. So it is a sport with, you know, decorum, but of course, underneath, What's going on in people's minds might be a little more competitive, maybe a little more vicious. When you have the your pro, Robert, I mean, literally, I we've got a pro. I felt like so. I some I've always said someone should write a book from his perspective, um, and how he's making this joke about how the women are so into it. When meanwhile, they're probably not better than a three-five ranking. <laughs> Just everything. I was laughing out loud. So I've also told everyone that plays tennis with me to read your book. Oh, um, but so. I know you wrote some of this between matches yourself. So what is your relationship with tennis and why did you sort of want this to be such an essential part of the conflict and backstabbing other than it's clearly so perfect for it? And how if is it so universal and no one's ever really cultivated it the way you did here? It's amazing. So true. Yeah. I had not, that was something else I had noticed, like in the world had not been mm-hmm. somehow synthesized into like a fictional product or a, I was like, why is there not a TV show about that? Like, it's so funny to me playing tennis for that reason. I mean, I grew up playing tennis, so I played on my high school team. I'm not good, but like I can play recreational women's tennis. And I had mm-hmm. kind of given it up when, you know, in my twenties and thirties and then took it back up a few years ago and started noticing even more the kind of, you know, obsession. And I think as people age, there are fewer outlets to be really competitive. You know, you're not like playing soccer when you're 42. It's like not a thing, which is, but when you're a kid, there's all these things where you can actually compete in a healthy way. And tennis remains one of them because people can play it until they're dead, basically, which they do, which is awesome. And it's really, you know, accessible to people who are not necessarily so athletic too. It's not like you have to be, it's not being a gymnast. Like a lot of people can play bad tennis. And also I think, you know, going towards what you were saying, which is kind of also like a metaphor for the women in the book, it has that kind of, you know, as you said, decorum and manners and, Mm -hmm. you know, beautiful outfits and it's all like expensive and rich and, but then underneath, it can be really, really dark and, mm-hmm. and they get so wrapped up in it and it doesn't necessarily reflect their actual ability. It's more just about the the idea of being competitive in general. And I do think women mm-hmm. are very competitive and I don't think there are that many places for them to put that energy. And tennis for some people is one of them. Like running is not competitive the way tennis is. No. Golf is not competitive the way tennis is. Like think of all the sports that women play as they age. Tennis is maybe one of the only ones where you're actually wanting to win. 
And I still think women want to win. Like I don't think, and I think that's a thing that they really are Mm -hmm. taught to not talk about that much and, or, you know, it's like still, still, which is so crazy thought to be like an unladylike feeling to want to like really beat someone in something. Mm -hmm. And that comes out in recreational tennis. And I find that so funny that nobody else had like picked up on that. Right. Or that nobody wants to say that out loud. You're absolutely, I do, which is probably says a lot about me, but um, <laughs> yes. no, I'm, I'm unabashedly competitive. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying you're competitive. I think to your point, most of the women playing are, but they just don't want to say it out loud. They think they're not supposed yeah. to say it. I mean, I'm not going to be an asshole. I, I'm just, I would like to win. Yes, I don't understand why I'm not supposed to say that. (laughs) No, and I'm very competitive in all aspects in my career, in in everything. I like Mm -hmm. that. And I I don't think there's anything wrong with that either, but I don't think many people talk about it. But again, it can come out in tennis in a way that's, it's funny. Mm -hmm. Like you hear women like cursing themselves, like, God damn it, Mary. Like, you know, like just stuff where you're like, oh, you can't actually speak like that in any other setting but like weirdly in this little court you're allowed to be like you know fuck myself like yes yeah Um, so i i don't know i thought that was a good element and i also thought it was you know a good way to kick off all the drama that leads to someone dying is like a was to me a kind of a very like funny way of like setting off like almost a murder you know where it's like because someone loses one of these dumb tennis tournaments (laughs) So um, great. It's oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah it's, a, perfect. it's a good sport, though. I love tennis. I really do. I think I, I really missed my calling here with tennis. <laughs> I never played it, never picked it up. And now all I'm left with is board games. And no one wants to play with me mm. because I am like so competitive and so <laughs> like over the top. And maybe it's uh, just not as, um, you know, universal as tennis i really missed it really missed you can take it up you can take it up and you can it's not like i know people who started when they were in their 40s and you know Mm -hmm. can still hang they're like okay you know i'm gonna gonna think about it but but it would really kill me if i wasn't good so that would be that that would be the tough part uh i want to wrap oh i want to wrap up with wait first i want to i have to ask you is this was a two book deal Mm-hmm. And yes. second book, I mean, we've been had a string of second book um, authors. We've been interviewing mm-hmm. them recently and talking about the terror and the horror that is the second novel. But did I did I hear that you completely subverted that? Uh, well, I don't. I mean, I'm currently working on edits for the second book. So I wrote. It was a two book deal. Well, it was at first a one book deal and then I had an idea for a second book and it sort of turned into a two book deal at the time. So that was good and exciting. And before I wrote it last summer and into the fall, I, before anything happened with Bad Summer People, I felt like I had a story. I wanted to at least get a draft done so that I didn't have that pressure of yes. I don't know, doing it after the first book came out. So I was able to do that pretty quickly. And also I did already have like a formed idea in my mind. So I kind of banged that out. I'm working on the edits of it and hopefully it will come out next summer. I think it's set for maybe June or July. And it's not like a continuation of Bad Summer People. It's an entirely different book and plot, but it's the same kind of 
guess it's like my jam. Like I'm finding like what my kind of writing is going to be about, which is very much just like satiric novels about like the upper middle class, <laughs> which like mm-hmm. is like that's my wheelhouse, I guess, which I am fine with. Like that's yeah, a, a sweet spot of storytelling. I and, agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this one is about, but it's more set in the corporate world. It's about a tech company that is on the verge of getting sold. And the executive team of the tech company goes down to Miami for like a celebratory executive retreat, like a morale building, like whatever. And then on the first night, one of them disappears. And then you sort of go through the rest of the retreat with them figuring out where she is, what happened to her, what's happening with the company. And it's very much a send up of, you know, corporate culture, also like female executives and, um, you know, greed in, in that world. And uh, I think it's like a little bit funnier than bad summer people, and it's not, it's focused again, more on like work relationships rather than like familial relationships. That's fantastic. It sounds great. And you really, the, the piece of getting that draft done. So like you have it anchored before the first book comes out is really what people that if you don't have that, that's what people struggle against. Um, yeah. I felt like I just had to do it. I yeah, was like, this smart. was I have to do this. Otherwise it's like never going to happen. And I had a panic about that. And also there it's, I mean, a good two book deals are great because the pressure is already on you. Like I, it wasn't like I had a, I had to do, and it was, yeah, I, you didn't need fake deadlines. Yeah. You were going to have real deadlines. Exactly. And also I had the pressure of, and these people are paying me to do this yeah. with a job, which is fine mm-hmm. because it's easier to complete something where you're like, actually, I'm getting paid for this than it is, you know, it was not that hard for me to complete the first one, but this one, I was like, I'm, I can't let people down. Yeah. You know, yes. and the first one is just like for me and whatever. And if it hadn't worked, I would have just kind of shrugged and thought, okay, well, I gave that a go and whatever. Mm-hmm. But this one, I, you know, there was a little bit more pressure, but that actually was better for me, I think, and fine for me. I don't, I worked well when someone's saying, you need to get this done by X time. Same. Yeah. Um, yes. So yeah, to mm-hmm. just like get it done, at least something done because you can always change something but yeah, it's like sure. the draft is like the most important thing editing is you know even if you're having to rewrite parts of it or figure out different like plot structures like that to me doesn't feel as difficult once you have something to be like here's a thing yes yeah yeah no that's that's great uh and i did the same thing my agent was like are you sure you want a two book deal because it's a lot of pressure i'm like ah pressure i love pressure <laughs> Bring it on. Yeah, because otherwise you'd be waiting. Like, I think I would have been, it would have been much harder for me to wait because I guess the other strategy is if you wait until the first book comes out and then the first book is some kind of blockbuster and then you can get maybe a little bit more money for the second book for whatever reason. But I was like, I'm not. Because then what if the first book flops? Doesn't. Yes. Yeah. Doesn't do as well as you expected. Mm-hmm. And for someone like me who has very high expectations, it's it's never going to meet my expectations. So I will Literally, already feel like- I mean, yeah. like Bad Summer People has been doing so well. And this probably goes to my competitive thing that I was saying. Mm-hmm. It's it's like up on the, you know, publisher's weekly bestseller list. We got optioned. It's got, it's like selling like hotcakes. I'm like, why is it not beating like happy place? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
yes. that damn Emily Henry. Yes. Literally, that's how I feel, and because yeah. I'm so oh, I get it. it to, you know, and the, that um, is a funny feeling. <laughs> but no. uh, I have the same thing where like it doesn't matter, and that's just probably in my entirety of my life. Not not with my children uh, or my husband, but just the idea that like it can always be. You can always be a rung higher. You can always be doing a little bit better. And um, I feel that with, with the books as well, which is probably not the healthiest. My agent was like, just be happy. I was like, oh no, I can't. No, I can't. No, no, no. That's ridiculous. This is, you're talking to the right people here. You We're are. Like, I'm like, if you're happy, you might as well die. I just want to keep going. <laughs> and someone asked me that the other day. They're like, aren't you just thrilled with what's happening in your life? I was like, what does that even mean? Sure. I mean, I, I don't know. Yes. In theory, yes, yes, yeah, you know, but uh, and again, I try to be very, uh, I try to allow the happiness and the being satisfied to be around my family and having healthy, great kids and a nice husband, like all of that. I'm like, okay, that I can just be like, good, good job. But like when it comes professionally, I, I don't, like, I don't think there's anything that could like make yeah. me feel like, oh, I've, I've done it at this point. My gosh. Mm-hmm. I love hearing yeah. someone talk about that without it feeling like that's something you need to fix about you. Cause I know I'm not going to fix that about me. It just is who I am. And it, and it, frankly, yeah. it's working when it stops working. That's when you look at it, but if it's working yeah, or when it becomes something right, like toxic in your own life yeah. and you feel yeah. like you can never succeed in any way. It's not, I've always been driven and it's been helpful. Yeah. It is helpful yeah. in school. It's been helpful in my jobs. And, um, it's just not hurt me in a way. And I, I don't, I don't know. It's, as you said, it's like, it's working. I don't know. I have yeah. a book out. I have a good job. Like, I don't know. And I do think probably <laughs> yeah. that having that safe zone, like I do too, my husband and my kids, and that probably helps balance it all yeah. out. Um, you know, that and just not feeling competitive about my children, which is also something that I want to get into in another book. But the idea of like channeling ambition and, and competitiveness through children is something I oh. see all over the place in New York City and elsewhere. And um, I feel like that is a real recipe for uh, disaster yeah. and to really try not to do that and just to let my kids be like, I don't. Like anything they do, I'm like, that's amazing. Like, I don't know. Like, See? I'm just not, I, I direct it all at myself. In- yes. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I yeah, have yeah. too much ambition to worry about their yeah. successes, especially at this young age. Like, let Same them become way. adults and worry about their own ambition. I'm working on mine. I am but with you. Also, and, yeah. No, I was going to say there's some real satirical material there. Like you said, that that's, that's got your name written all over it too. That's book three. I know. Three. That's book number three. That's book Love three. it. Yeah. I already have an idea, guys. That is right. I love it. For the... mm -hmm. Yeah. And Um, and if you'll humor us for one more moment, as you're talking, I'm really hearing a lot of Aries. I did not get to do your chart, but I'm hearing a lot of Aries. But I know you're an April Taurus. Is that correct? I am. Yes. I am an April Taurus. The I have a theory that the the ones that are in the the wrong month, like I am mm-hmm. too. I'm the end of March. Kate is I am too, too. The end of July. So we're like the beginning of the new sign. They carry over a lot of traits from the previous sign. So I'm hearing a lot of Aries. Do you relate to being a Taurus? Do you care about astrology in any way, shape, you know, or form? It's funny. I'm not really an astrology person, but I do oversee a team of like millennial and elder millennial women at work mm-hmm. who are obsessed. And it's so <laughs> yep. interesting to me that, that this has become such a thing amongst people who are like eight mm-hmm. years younger than I am. 
And I don't, I, I don't know when we were growing up, nobody, we weren't really like, it wasn't a thing, but everybody is like, but yes, people have told me Aries before. I mm-hmm. feel Taurus in that I am very stubborn, very mm-hmm. like, yeah, I yeah, yeah. change my mind. And if I'm not mm-hmm. going to do something like I will not do it, which yeah, is a yeah. problem with my husband occasionally. But like, I just, when I decide it's like, there's no turning back. And mm-hmm. that to me is a very Taurus-y kind of. I agree. Person. I heard a lot of that in the beginning of our of our chat, like just decision maker done. It's over. Don't yep. go back. Don't look at it. It's, don't go back. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's fixed. Which is freeing. I mean, and I don't have it. Like my sister's like, you might also be slightly psychotic because I just don't, <laughs> I can like not think about, so I can like drop people. I'm just like, and we're moving on, yeah. you know, I'm just right. right. With you. I'm oh, like, well Nothing. that's, that's very Aries <laughs> too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but also very Taurus to not be that into astrology. They're yes, of the signs. Really, yeah, they're true. not. It they're is. just not. So but are you guys sense. really into it? You guys must be both really into it then. We, yes, are, we are. Yeah, we are. It I will say real, I was, it's beyond a side interest now. I mean, Corinne's <laughs> book, by the way, that's coming out is called The Astrology House. There's a lot it's of a astrology thriller, in it. But, yeah. But I yeah. was raised by a witch mother, a mother who okay. deems herself to be <laughs> connected to something else. So I think I had always been interested. So that was my that little weird pocket as opposed to so like crystals and like, like that. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of that evil eye, a lot of um, superstition, intuition, mm-hmm. intuition. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of that stuff. So Interesting. thank you so much. This was such a fun chat. I loved chatting with you. I wasn't surprised. You match your tone of your book, which by the way, also <laughs> I love the cover and I love yes. that it's so delicious looking and it's like dark inside. I You've really nailed yeah, it. Yeah, the cover is great. They did a, I was really happy with the cover. We had, we went through a bunch of versions and when this one came along, both my agent and I were like, that one, that is it. the one. Like mm. I can imagine it in a bookstore and now seeing it in bookstores, I'm like, they, this pops in a way that's really nice. It feels different enough. And as you said, it's like that sort of sunny, but actually like there's a, you know, there's a bullseye. Yes, I know exactly yeah. the target, right? Yes, literally. It's perfect, mm-hmm. perfect. Yeah. So fun time. And I just you. know so yeah. many bad summer people. I live them. They're everywhere. So I just, <laughs> I loved it. I felt like I just knew all these people. And now I'm sort of, I'm like, oh, there's the Rachel. Oh, there's Lauren. <laughs> Love it. Love it. <laughs> well, I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. And I had so much fun talking well, to you. you. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you.